Germantown Community Radio, 92.9 FM, WGGTLP, Philadelphia, and online at gtownradio.com. This is What Do You Know About That? A radio show about anything and everything happening in our community, our city, and our world. Here are your hosts, Eric Gershnow and Mary Angela Saavedra. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another riveting episode of What Do You Know About That? How are you doing this afternoon, Mary Angela? I'm great, Eric. How are you? Surviving the winter blues. What can I say? It's, yeah. uh, I'm in the trough coming down from the holidays trying to get my mind back into to gear. I'm still adjusting back to work and a busy schedule. And on top of that, it's it's cold and wet outside. Yeah, but it's better than being cold and snowy, so I'll take it. Yeah, this is true. But yeah, the gray skies. I'm kind of over the gray skies, too. (laughs) Not a lot of fun. But otherwise, it's almost the weekend, so hey, there's that. Yes, that's always a positive. So uh, what kind of fact or crap do you have for me today? Okay, fact or crap. Serving a guest a cold piece or cut of shoulder meat or literally giving them the cold shoulder, was considered the polite medieval way to tell your guest to leave. Is this fact or crap? So giving them a cold piece of meat (laughs) or a a cold cut of beef in medieval times was considered a polite way of asking a guest to leave. I mean, honestly, if I was visiting somebody and they gave me cold food, I would probably get the hint. So maybe um, I have to choose, don't I? Yeah, you have to choose. Fact or crap? I'm going to say crap. I think in medieval times, they just pointed a sword at you and told you to get out. <laughs> I don't know. That seems kind of harsh to pull a sword on a guest unless they like really went out of their way to... You oh, know, they said a polite you way. Okay, you're right. Out. They said a polite way. Maybe a polite way would just be like, you know, just asking you to leave. <laughs> get out of <laughs> Yes, get thy out of my house. I don't know. No. But I still say it's, I don't think that's true. Indeed, it is a fact. Wow. Clearly these sayings got to come from somewhere. <laughs> the cold shoulder. I think a lot of the sort of the modern ways to tell people off <laughs> really I mean think about right there was the plucking of the the it's the biting of my thumbs if you bit your thumb that was like okay so biting your thumbs on. but then there's also a, a very inappropriate word for the radio that was drawn from medieval times too mm. the archers would pull branches from the yew tree or and they would call it plucking the yew and that sort of morphed into, you know, because they're using it to fight enemies and whatnot, that mm-hmm. sort of morphed into other sayings hmm. that kind of rhyme with that. Gotcha. I yeah. did not know that. Yeah, look it up. All right. I'm, I'm sure many of our <laughs> listeners have probably Googled that at some point. Well, I learned I something to... new today that the cold shoulder came from giving people, people cold, cold meat. meat in the medieval days. <laughs> yeah, go figure. Right. So. This edition of Factor Crap. Thank you for playing. <laughs> so, do you have anything on your neighborhood radar? Other than just catching a few shows locally. You know, we had our guests, our musical guests that were on last episode, Turtle Ridge. They, indeed, mm-hmm. they played the Dawsons on the 20th on Friday night to go catch them. Mm-hmm. So, that was that was fun that was had. Nice. But, 
that's about it. Okay. What do you have going on on your radar in the neighborhood? Well, I have a couple things I wanted to talk about. The first one is an event that's going on this weekend. And I don't know if you remember me talking about it last year, but the Chestnut Hill on Ice Festival is returning this year. And it is coming up this weekend, this Friday and Saturday. It's the the big festival of ice in Chestnut Hill. Do you remember me talking about this last year? I do not. Enlighten me. Okay. Well, it's a really cool festival that happens in Chestnut Hill involving ice sculptures and ice sculpting demos and mm-hmm. basically all things sort of winterfied, right? So it's just a chance to go up to Chestnut Hill and walk down the boulevard and see all kinds of unique ice sculptures by different ice sculpting artists. So like if you're walking down the avenue, Germantown Avenue, um, you'll see different ice sculptures in front of different businesses. Usually Mm -hmm. if that business has an ice sculpture in front of it, they have some kind of Chestnut Hill on Ice special going on inside. So it's always worth it to like pop in and see what's happening. And some of those specials can be like discounts on chili or like, you know, a discount on a hot cup of cocoa or something. They're all just sort of participating in this festival. But Mm -hmm. the coolest events that I think are going on is the Ice Sculpture Garden, which is uh, located at the um, Laurel Hill Gardens Center, which is on Germantown Avenue. It's at 8125 Germantown Avenue. Okay. It's that place that like you can buy Christmas trees there it, and they sell a lot of plants different times of years. It's like diagonal across from Bredenbeck's. It's got like a fence that like I, I'm trying to describe it so you'll recognize it. But anyway, it's yeah. there. Trust me. It's called Laurel Hill Gardens. And that is where the ice sculpture garden is happening Friday from 5 o'clock to 8 p.m. And then on Saturday from noon to 5 p.m. So if you want to see several ice sculptures in sort of garden format, go there. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you can just walk up and down the street. They're also doing street curling this year. <laughs> street curling. Street curling in the blue lot. So I guess Chestnut Hill has some different parking lots. I'm not really sure where the blue lot is. I'd have to look that up. But apparently in the blue lot, there's going to be street curling going on. I mean, I'd go to the blue lot just to see what the heck street curling is. Um, I then... mean, <laughs> is it like traditional curling, the Canadian sport of curling? But in the street? But since it hasn't snowed in a while, I'm wondering how they're going to make that possible. I, but I don't know. Again, worth finding out. Also, if you want to see live ice sculptures and live carving demonstrations, they're going on in several different locations, not just at Laurel Hill Gardens. There's all different kinds of places uh, along the avenue that you can find that. There's an ice bonfire that will be going on. Um, that's going to be on Saturday at 530 Um, somewhere near the blue lot again there's an ice bar at the market on the fairway and another place for ice carving demonstrations there and then again a lot of the businesses are having you know specials that are sort of themed toward chestnut Mm -hmm. hill and ice but i remember last year sort of accidentally stumbling upon it and right outside the stagecrafters theater was this giant ice sculpture of a theater ticket it was awesome. It was really thick and really big. And it was uh-huh. like, and it said admit one. And it was like really detailed. And I was like, wow. oh, this is super cool. Like, I don't know. It had the little card with the name of the artist who did it. So, I mean, it just seems like something different and kind of fun. And we haven't had much snow or, you know, I mean, it's been cold, but it hasn't been particularly snowy. So Don't this, jinx it. I know. But this just seems like a fun, a fun winter festival that is returning for its second year. Chestnut Hill on oh, Ice. That's very cool. This weekend. Check it out if you're Chestnut around. Chestnut Hill on Ice. Yeah, that, that seems, seems like something to do. On the more sort of issue front in the neighborhood, something that came up. There are some signs popping up uh, around the neighborhood in Germantown that you may have seen. 
addressing the issue of trash in our neighborhood. Have you seen any of these signs? No, I haven't. Well, they are around, and now I kind of want to go hunt them out because I, too, haven't run into them yet, but I have a feeling they're going to pop up like those slow down signs, and we're going to start seeing a lot more of them. The sign says they're nice and big. They're orange, you know, just regular, like, yard signs like you see, and it says, pick up the damn trash, (laughs) exclamation point, (laughs) and they are all over the place. And somebody took a picture of it and posted it uh, this morning. And as of right now, we're looking at like 67 comments on this thread. Oh, my. What do you think the biggest comment on this thread, like what, what the thought behind the comments might be? I could see either people who are proponents for it, but I could also see people who might rile against the way the message is conveyed. That's interesting you say that, because that is what the most of these posts are about, are people who are mad with the choice of language. Yeah. Using the word damn. Yeah. Well, why? Why does that offend you? Why does it offend me? Well, it doesn't necessarily offend me particularly. I I find it kind of amusing. I kind of get the sentiment because it conveys a degree of frustration. I think people love the city. They want their neighborhoods to look beautiful. And they want people to stop leaving trash around. Yeah. But the real question is, why do you see so much trash? Grant, you know, we live in the city. There's a lot of people around, sure. But what causes people to litter? Sure. And then I guess the other piece of it is why is it my job to clean up other people's litter? Like, of course, I'm going to. You know, our big joke is tumble trash, right? Tumble trash comes into our yard. Yeah, and stuff we're like, flies into your yard. You, you, what are you going to do? Right. And we're like, oop, tumble Not trash. And we pick it up and yeah. we throw it away. Right. You can but, build a fence around your yard, I suppose. <laughs> sure. But sort of the idea and, and one of the sort of sentiments I think behind this movement is like people are trying to be like well if everybody does their part and just picks up trash when they see it then there won't be trash but that's the bigger frustration right like you said is that where is this trash coming from who's littering in the first place and why is it my job to go and pick up other people's trash Mm -hmm. right so then I think the statement behind the sign is actually pretty genius because the truth is yeah it's frustrating you know yeah why why are you throwing trash in the street and then on top of it why do we have to pick up your trash and the street just pick it up like care enough about the neighborhood to not put garbage in the street but the the big complaint yeah is is the inclusion of the word some of the people are really upset because how this affects children we're not setting a good example for children by using this language and i'm like really i mean i I get it that word isn't you know necessarily considered the nicest word i guess it was considered more of a curse word uh, older times than now but yeah, and the emotion behind that, you can imagine when you read that, you could see someone with an attitude saying it, perhaps. I don't know. But yeah, if you're concerned about kids, kids tend to parrot things that they see and hear. Yeah, um, so one person says, I agree with the message, but would never say it like that. The litter mm-hmm. trash situation in Germantown is horrible and seemingly intractable. In the 40 plus years that I've lived here, worse in some parts blocks than others. However, I also don't support anonymous signs being put up all over the neighborhood by canvassers who don't even know who is behind it. Because that's the big thing is everyone's like, well, who's behind it? Where did this start? Who is it? Right. So there is a candidate, Jeff Brown, who's running for mayor. Mm-hmm. And some people think that this might be Do we know part, the part of his of team. The... 
Right. No. I mean, that's the thing is they're like, no, we have no proof that it's his team. We have no proof that it's his slogan. And so that's the thing is this person's being like, well, we don't know who this is. We don't know why they've appeared. Could just be a neighbor. Could just be someone who's part of a community group Mm -hmm. who's been trying to clean up trash for so long and finally is like you know what if we've got these slow down germantown slow down mount airy signs all over the place why don't we clean up the trash pick up your darn trash so i mean i get it and i get that the message is you know strongly worded another person says the messaging is confusing is it meant for the property owner to pick up the trash or the people walking by and that is a valid statement right anyone who's willing able and willing to pick up trash (laughs) but then that goes back to my point right why is it my job to pick up other people's trash when they've littered it everywhere so well if you really want to get deep into the weeds of the argument we could ask the question why does industry use plastic containers to put everything in and then put the responsibility on the consumer to then find a means of disposing when they're the ones who are making it yeah but yeah. I don't want to go down that route. <laughs> yeah. The the other thing that I found interesting was, um, he, you know, here's, uh, you know, a person commenting on sort of my side. So most of the comments on here are about like, yeah, I'm put off by the message of this. I'm put off by not knowing who did it. I'm put off by the, the language they've used. And this person says, I, for one, would much rather see this sign. The littering in the neighborhood, especially near bus stops, is much more unsightly than this sign is. And I'm like, well, that's a valid point. <laughs> I, you know, and it, it gets a conversation going, right? Because clearly 67 people are discussing it right now. They're like, they're having thoughts on it. Mm-hmm. And at least that's what I'm sure this person was trying to to do, right? To bring some attention to it. Sure. It really does beg the question, how do you appeal to people's better nature? Yeah. So you can be direct. Usually doesn't always work. If you say, pick up the trash, Versus maybe, uh, I don't know, I mean, I'm not necessarily suggesting incentivizing people, but if you want people to do things, usually you find a way to incentivize them. I mean, do we have to incentivize people to clean up their neighborhood? I mean, that's just, you know, I understand. I get it. It's the world we live in. Well, the conversation is still going on. And if you listeners have some thoughts about this or anything, as usual, that we talk about here on the show, you can always email us at what do you know gtown at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at what do you know about that What sort of topic do you have in store for us today? I'm uh, anxiously awaiting. Bated breath. Well, um, you know, I've been cooking a lot lately, um, particularly recipes from the way back, right? Mm-hmm. Um, sort of vintage recipes. I follow this person on the Instagram who likes to dig up old recipes and, you know, from the 30s and 40s and 50s. Vintage recipes. Right. Um, and I watch his videos very closely and I decide if they're the ones that he made that were disgusting or the ones where I'm like, I'm going to try this. Um, and I've been doing that. And that got me thinking, you know, just about food in general, particularly the way we ate food and like where you got food not just the grocery store that you cooked at home but like particularly eating out mm-hmm. and that led me down a rabbit hole that ended with the automat the automat do you know what the automat is well it sounds like there's some mechanized component to it with 
the word auto. <laughs> Enlighten me. So the automat is short for automatic restaurant. Automats were first started in Germany, where a lot of technological advances came from way back in the day. That's where they got their original start. However, they gained popularity. They were most popular in the United States after a certain point. So there were a couple in Europe because basically what it was was a wall that they had designed that basically had little windows in it and you would drop your coins in and you would get whatever food came out that you could see on the other side of the window pieces of pie you could do like meat pies they could do like some kind of like sirloiny steak situation mm. and on the other side of this wall was a small kitchen that had cooks in it and the cooks would just make the things when something would leave one of the windows they would be like okay we got to make another one of those and yeah. put it up there and the entire wall unit had the ability to keep food hot and to keep food cold when needed in different ways but it was meant to be sort of instant gratification without having to go in and be waited on okay right? so you could just come in and be like i've so this got is like the first concept of fast food. fast food exactly this is how fast food got its start and it was a very European thing for quite a while. And then there was this gentleman who visited Europe and he saw it over there and basically was like, wow, this is amazing. I think we need to bring this back to the United States because I think there's a market for this right here. Mm -hmm. His name was Joe Horn and he saw it over there and he said, I want to bring this to the United States. I'm going to make this happen. So he comes to the United States and guess where good old Mr. Horn is from? Uh... Where was McDonald's born? No. Uh, Maine, Massachusetts. No, he's from Philadelphia, where everything starts that's cool in America. Oh, okay. <laughs> Philly, man. I should have guessed. <laughs> Our city. My apologies. Yes, he's from Philadelphia. And he wants to start an automat in Philadelphia. But he can't do it alone. So mm -hmm. he basically puts an ad in the paper and says, I'm looking for a business partner, a restaurateur business partner who is willing to do this with me. And mm -hmm. he found Frank Hardart in Philadelphia. Okay. Frank Hardart was actually a New Yorker who just happened to be visiting Philadelphia because back in the day, the two cities were pretty much like oh, twin yeah. cities, right? It was A or B. The train went back and forth. You could work in both cities. It was a thing. And like they were like A-O-O-A. Right. <laughs> so he gets his partner and he says, all right, this is what I want to do. And they found the very first automat at 818 Chestnut Street in Philadelphia. The first U.S. Horn and Hardart automat. You can still see the original facade at that address to this really? day. Yes, you can. Oh, wow. The building, of course, has taken some turns and inside is all completely different. Right. But you can see it as of 2020. This is a picture on Wikipedia from 2020. And you can see the actual automat sign that's, that's still cool. on it. So, yeah, that's where it started. Now... What they did was take this sort of simple conceptual idea and elevate it. The idea behind it was that they would build these really grand dining rooms, right? Mm -hmm. So beautiful marble and just like very ornate, like really awesome. And then you would come with your coins and you would put it in and get your food and just go sit at an open table. But the idea was that it was very beautiful and luxurious, but you didn't have to tip because there was no servers. You got everything yourself. Right. Um, they had sort of a beverage wall where hot beverages came mm. out. You could get coffee and now not just any coffee. Because lattes? Right? Do they have lattes? No, this is before the day of lattes. <sighs> But in New Orleans, they had a very special kind of coffee that was a little different than what we were drinking in the rest of the country. New Orleans-style coffee is blended with chicory, which is something we weren't doing with coffee in other parts of the country. So it made it very different, which is something so chicory, we weren't that's, doing. That's almost, it's a root. 
Yes. Right? It's mm-hmm. um isn't it kind of similar to like sarsaparilla or root yeah. beer or something? Yeah, it's gonna have a little bit of a sweet flavor, a sweetie. Like oh. not not really sweet, but like root beer and coffee now. <laughs> you got me thinking. All right, anyway, continue. Anyway, their machines, right, would would give out the coffee and a little sprig of milk, and then that was like all you ever needed, right? It was the perfect cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't just be like a regular spigot like we see now where you like turn on the coffee and you pull your coffee out and you mix it up like we do. It was super ornate. It had like a dolphin head on it and it was made of like silver and brass, sort of next level. They really went out with like the decor back in the day. They did. And so it was a whole event to go to an automat was exciting. It was like, oh, I'm going to go to the automat. Hey, y'all, you want to head, we're heading down to the automat. We're heading down to the automat. You want to get the automat? (laughs) So of course, as you can imagine, they grew pretty quickly. There were several automats in Philadelphia and then they decided to bring them to New York like you would. Now, what was going on in the early 1900s in New York City? Well, early 20th century, are we we talking about a pandemic perhaps? No, No, we're talking about women in the workforce. We're talking about women going to work in the early 1900s, particularly in New York City, stenographers, right? You needed these women who could type things and transpose things. And stenographers in New York City went from being like 3,000 to being like 300,000 stenographers in a three-year time span. And they need to feed the workforce. Correct. Particularly women who at that time can't go into a restaurant without male accompaniment, right? You have to be escorted into a restaurant. That's how societal norms dictated at the time. But the automat was not a restaurant, right? It was a cafeteria, basically. And you would go in with your quarters on your lunch break, put your money in the slot, pull your sandwich out, get your cup of coffee, sit down at the counter eat your food, and go back to work. And you could go with a group of women from your office. You could go all together. And that was socially acceptable, right? You couldn't go to a restaurant, couldn't take your lunch break and go downtown to the Ritz and have a full meal, but you could go to the automat. And thus was born office gossip. There's that. Also, the food at the automat was affordable. Yeah. I mean... Originally, the the first automats in New York City took only nickels. And in fact, that stayed for like a long time. So as food prices increased, it just took more nickels to get something. And there was a woman who sat in like a booth where you would take your dollars and then she would hand you nickels in exchange for your dollar bills because that's all the machine took. It didn't take dollars. It didn't take quarters. It took nickels. So, yeah, I mean, imagine like how well, I mean, that, that sounds like the precursor to the five and dime, yeah, right the Woolworths, right. And but it was and it was social, right? It was to be seen. So you could go and meet your girlfriends who worked at a whole nother office building mm-hmm. downtown, right? But you'd meet at the automat for lunch. You could catch up. You could do your thing. Then you go back to work. And it became really, really popular. Now, of course, it wasn't just women that went there to eat. But again, it was a place where they could go. It was socially acceptable to go. It was safe for them to go. And they could get food relatively inexpensively. It didn't cost them basically everything they were making that week in wages to get lunch right. on any given day. So the popularity of the automat in New York City exploded because that workforce was huge and definitely blooming mm-hmm. at the time. So they had a lot. I think at one point, the thing I read said there was something like 24 automats within like a so many block radius of wow. downtown Manhattan, right? Because there were just, there was a need. So then you have to think about supplying all the food for these automats because mm-hmm. you can't always do cook to order 
situations. Having a little kitchenette back there was great for warming things, for keeping things in there, for keeping it stock, right? And on top of it, you need some foods prepared. So you prepare them, you send them off to each automat, the automat then warms them, sticks them in the little window. So that created a need for the company, Heart and Heart Art, to expand into food production. They branched off and they became a food service company as well. And during the war in 1940, when we got into World War II, they were already established because they had all these automats that they were supplying food for. So it was very easy for the government to go, hey, you guys, you make quick, easy, affordable, transportable food. Mm-hmm. Please provide food for our ships as we're sending troops out so they expanded. Otherwise, the government would have had to have created a whole food service <laughs> company to to handle that to handle all of that and this was already like i said pre-packaged they would do pies they'd cook them at a facility they'd make the pie together then it would just go off to wherever the automat was they'd warm it stick it in the drawer so then mm. to take those pre-packaged meals and put them on a ship to give the troops as they're sailing over to europe is you know well that must easy. have like coincided with the era of canning and things like that mm-hmm. where you're doing mass production and you need to employ more sterile techniques to ensure preservation of food. Yes, but they were really doing like sort of, I mean, think boxed lunches. You know yeah. what I mean? Like that was kind of the Made method. fresh stuff. Right. And yeah. it really was, this, this is how fast food started. Because you were going to go in and you were going to get a hot piece of pie or you were going to get a hot piece of Salisbury steak. It was like a la carte, right? What do I want to eat today? I want to eat this little bowl of pudding with this little steak and this little vegetable from here. You know, it it was very much pick and choose what you want and lighter fare. It wasn't meant to be dinner. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It was absolutely meant to be lunch. It basically shaped the culture that we now recognize as fast food. Right. Convenience food. That's exactly it. But again, it started being very, very ornate, fancy they, they really it wanted it to be. It was an experience. Yeah, they definitely wanted yep. to be. They sort of started to go out of style, as you can imagine, when inflation kind of started creeping in and it became too many nickels <laughs> to get something out of it. Plus, they were making way for other types of establishments like true fast food restaurants, right? By this point, in the late 60s, we're starting to see McDonald's. We're starting so, to so see... So when what time period did you start to see the automat start to... Wayne. Officially, it says the late 50s, early 60s was the beginning of the decline. Okay. There were still automats around, just not as many. They just started slowly started to sort of shuddering in different places. Mm-hmm. And then by the time we got to the 70s, the early 70s, it really made it very hard to keep any open because inflation had changed the landscape so much. Like, yeah. you know, it would take like 20 nickels, a full dollar to get something out of the automat instead of three nickels, which is what you used to be able to do or, you know, something like that. Also the cost of shipping the food and the person that's back there loading the food and the things like that. It just became very difficult. And a few of them lasted for a while after that, just because of the novelty or nostalgia you know, piece where people were just like, oh, we know we don't want this to go. This has been around for so long. It's such a piece of history. We don't want this to go away. And so in the end, there were just a couple that were left standing. And the one in New York and the one in Philadelphia were two of the last. The two originals were, were two of the Did last they, standings. So was this really like an exclusive thing to East Coast cities or just Philly and New York? 
in the United States, pretty much. But there were several other countries that had them. It wasn't just uh, in the United States. They were wildly popular in places like the Netherlands. Had several automats for a while. Japan. Mm-hmm. And Japan, you know, when you still to this day, you can go and, you know, the com- conveyor belt sushi situation, right? Yeah. That That's basically that's ex- extension. Kind of con- a sort of a common thing. Exactly. Like, well, it, you know, that probably started as an automat type situation. Yeah. And now it's, you know, moved into to this. But that sort of convenience food experience was definitely popular. I'm a um, fan of the uh, conveyor belt sushi. So yeah. if and I've only seen it in New York. I'm sure there's other cities, maybe. But you walk in and then you, it's just booths, and then you sit in the booth, and then the little divider lanes between the booths is just a little conveyor belt with little trays of sushi that just go by and just grab whatever yeah. you want. I mean, that's an automat. That's yeah. an automatic restaurant. Yeah, <laughs> that that's what that is. I think if we ever open up a restaurant, that's the format we go with. I mean, I think it's pretty, it's pretty darn brilliant. cool. Yeah, no, it's it's really great. In the early 2000s, 30 years since the last Automat sort of closed its doors uh, in the United States, some companies tried to revive an Automat. Again, because they were like, this this seems like a real fun type of thing we want to bring back. So there was an attempt to bring back uh, in the East Village a Dutch-style Automat store in 2006, but it only lasted until 2009. Mm-hmm. It didn't make it. In 2015, another attempt was made by a San Francisco company, uh, which opened six automated restaurants in California, New York, and D.C., but closed them all by 2019. Mm-hmm. So again, I don't know if it was society that didn't sort of gel with it or the concept or the fast food is so saturated everywhere that people are like, why do I need this yeah, type of experience? I, it could be a little bit of both. I think it might be a, a cultural thing. I think the automat would only work with certain formats where if you had a small menu, because if you had a very diverse menu, then you'd be making stuff and plating it. I mean, you'd have to establish a demographic of what do people order the most, and then eventually what you'd end up doing is narrowing your menu down just to those things that are top sellers so that you can make the stuff, put it out there, and know that people are going to buy it without having leftover wasted food. Yes, and that is really what, I mean, even the original Automat did. You know, it only had a certain number of selections, mm-hmm. right? You know, like I said, it was pies, and then on any given day, it was this kind of pie, and on another day, it was this kind of pie. You know, you know, on Tuesdays, you went there for apple pie, or, the, you know, right. that kind of thing. And that's that's kind of the nature. But yeah, you're right. And in our society now, right, we like to have so much variety, right? We don't do well with oh there's only four choices like what am I going to do but well I, I think there's there's a balance I think there's choice but having a limited choice because when I go into a restaurant there's a number of diners that have pages of food items to order from and you're like I don't know what to eat there's so many choices it's true I agree that less is is better less is more yeah for sure so then something happened recently that has now brought back a uh, very similar not not a true automat but 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 very similar uh, and very close and closer than we've been in a long time to having automats what okay. do you, what do you think that was recently mm-hmm. within the last couple of years within the last couple of years do I know this I would tell you this. It happened after those three that the California company tried to open that I said closed by 2019. It was after that. Uh. Some, something happened after that that has made us revisit this type of dining experience. I don't know. Tapas? I have no idea. 
the pandemic. Oh, there you go. <laughs> right? Why would this be appealing in a time of pandemic? Well, you don't have to deal with people, right? Yeah. You just grab your food. There's no human interaction. You don't have to worry about passing germs. There's no server that's got to come to your table and wear a mask and, and breathe on your food. You can go get your stuff. You can either take it outside to eat it. You can take it wherever you need. You can eat it inside. If there's enough space, you can socially distance your seats. It is perfect for a pandemic, quite honestly. It really is what we want to do. So now there are several, um, the most popular right now being an automat kitchen in Jersey City's Newport Center shopping mall, mm. which opened in 2021. Mm-hmm. It uses technology similar to what was used before. Not, not quite exactly, but it definitely offers and specializes in fresh food. Okay. Then there's also the Brooklyn Dumpling Shop, which as of 2021 is still planning to open in the East Village, not far from the other one's location. So it really is something they're, they're trying to see, like, how, how does this work? How, you know, will people really be interested and attracted to this? It's also building out the system, right? That's why it's taken so long to try and get one kind of open and running, because there's a lot of moving parts, literally. Sure. You know, if you're trying to protect the food and keep it cold and keep it hot and keep it accessible and you know yeah supply chain all that but uh, i will tell you uh, not only the pandemic but being in the digital age it really warrants that kind of business model you know being able to couple then digital technology you could say place your order on your phone in in some case i mean that's what most people do right you you either grubhub it or whatever have groceries delivered to your doorstep and uh, again you're eliminating all that human to human interaction so I think this is going to come back around again. I don't think we've seen the last of the true automat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we are definitely, especially because of the pandemic and everything that's happened since and the way, like you said, supply chain and labor shortages and everything is going. I think we really are cycling through a time where we may see a genuine resurgence of these type of dining experiences of these type of places. I do think your phone is going to be involved. I don't think we'll be using nickels and quarters or anything of the like. I think it will be a, you know, tap your card on the, on the scanner. Right. They do it now. Right. You you go to the, um, the dining movie theater. Yeah. It used to be, they come to your seat and they take your order. Now you go in, you open up the app on your phone, you place the order and they just bring the food to your table and that's it. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, honestly, if I were to have an encore career, I could totally see myself <laughs> doing some kind of Running automated. Automat. I could. I mean, I think it'd be so fun, especially the idea of having this sort of ambient place, this this place with all this great atmosphere that you can come and hang out. But I wouldn't want just but food. But you wouldn't be enjoying it. I'd, I'd want people to come and be able to get cocktails and I'd want them to come and get like milkshakes. Like I'd want, yeah, I'd, I'd want all kinds of automated things. But yeah, that's... That's a topic for a different day. Anyway, that's the automat. That was my topic. That's what I wanted to talk about. Very interesting. No, it was really cool. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, don't go anywhere, listeners, because we have a very wonderful guest lined up for you this afternoon for who are the musicians in your neighborhood. So don't go anywhere. You're listening to 92.9 FM G-Town Radio. Welcome back, everyone, to uh, What Do You Know About That? Now it's time for our favorite segment of the show, Who Are the Musicians in Your Neighborhood? And today I'm joined by a very special guest, the one, the only, the incomparable 
Mr. Schoolie D, welcome to our program. Well, you're going to have like some fanfare. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Schoolie D. Hand, just pull this shit up. <laughs> this is the 21st century. It's some, it's some hand claps. Some, you know. Yeah, there you go. Right? There you right? Go. right? That's how, that's how go. we're going to work this. Yeah. That's yeah. what all the major hip hop stations do. So, oh, they don't do that anymore. Then. Oh, don't do that. Oh no, dude. Because you know, if all the hip hop stations, so-called hip hop stations, is doing that, then don't do it. Then don't do it. Then don't do it. What if we just did like an old "What's up, Doc"? Yeah, there you go. So you have a pretty historic career, if I should say. Dare yeah. I say? Yeah, you could say. I'm, I could I'm, say that. I'm, I'm 60 now. I've been We're on the radio. 40, you are historic. 40 years, man. The well, father of gangster rap. Yes. Can we start there? Yeah. All right. Yeah. I am. Uh, I am a purist, and and it, and it's sometimes it, it leads me down a dark hole, a dark okay. path, and it's just, and it and has led me to um to do some really great things, and to keep to keep hold. The purity of the music, and that's why we have. That's why we. That's why hardcore, gangster rap is the number one sound music in the world right now. I think maybe country. Um, I don't like all of it because it, it went on a, on its way. But if it wasn't for cats like me, like I just, as they say, kept it real, but not in the '90s sense of keeping it real. Because part of part of rap is is half reality and half like you know you want the party to flow you want the women you want right. the cars if you want to have you want to have fun and you know in other parties you telling the story of like yeah this is this this is this is what i saw this is this is the some of the things that i did mm-hmm. to get out of the situation and music helped me get there right um so we i had to keep that there's a documentary yeah. i actually caught it the documentary on Netflix. It was the evolution of hip hop, yeah. which I believe actually was the impetus for a Netflix series mm-hmm. called The Get Down. And it kind of goes from the 70s, talks about Grandmaster Flash, mm-hmm. all the way through 80s, 90s mm-hmm. to current. And in that documentary, Ice T is quoted as crediting you for being a huge influence on him. Yeah, I mean, it was, it's him, Chuck D. Yeah. Um, a lot of cats in uh, WA. So, who, who influenced Schoolie D, though? Who influenced Schoolie D? It's like one of the guys is on, on the wall, Jimi Hendrix. Yes. Um, James Brown, who are black enough for you. Yeah. Um, Bootsy Collins. Yes. Uh, John Coltrane. Um, it's, and there's like a whole array of artists. Uh, Langston Hughes. Um, uh, Marvin Gaye. Mm-hmm. Um, when he when he did the breakout breakout record with the Inner City Blues, all, all like all those those songs influenced me. Um, Billy Paul, yeah, was a huge influence on me because he was like he he was specific. He made a lot of music for for inmates for guys. Did you like actually meet, have you ever met Billy Paul? I mean, there's a, a, a story. Yeah, um, uh, the movie King of New York. That is the movie that started all the um, hip hop, hip hop and cop gangster movies. And um, I did the song. I was uh, I was on Dive RCA, and um, um, they were worried so much about uh, me having like too much of a white audience. 
Um, Is there anything it, wrong with that? There's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with it. But they didn't know. They didn't know how. Like I knew how to because it was my before I went to RCA and job. I, I had my own label. Yeah, and I knew how to market myself. But mm-hmm. it's the these cats are so racist. It was like the black department didn't want to talk to the white department. It was. It was a really weird thing, and the black guys were like, "Well, since you're since you're rap, we don't know how to do rock and roll." Because I just came off the tour, opening up for Big Audio Dynamite, and you know things things of that sort. So, so I told my mother the story, and she was like, "Well, you know what? Go upstairs. I've been saving something for you." I go upstairs and open up a chest, and she has this stack of records, mm-hmm. and then the record pile was Billy Paul. Am I black enough for you? So I redid the song. And um, at the same time, Abel Farrar was doing the movie King of New York, and I turned it down because it was um, I was just, I was in my zone. I was like, you know, it's, it's, I can't, you know, I can't, I can't, I can't work. I'm doing a very important record. So what he did was he went to RCA and said it, I said it was cool to use the music. I mean, he was taking my music as I was recording it, and he was using it uh, to score his his film. Mm-hmm. Um, and how he got to me was the movie King of New York. He was working on it, and and, and he wanted a real hip hop. So one of the DPs handed him a Saturday, a, my cassette Saturday night, and we listened to it. Said, "This is the guy I want. This this is this is the real deal." So it's like I did I did the song "Am I Black Enough for You," and I became more famous. But when Billy Paul did "Am I Black Enough for You," that was right after me and Mrs. Jones. It was kind of just like, how are you going to go from me and Mrs. Jones, and America was just like, oh, you talking about your blackness? So a lot of discotheques, like in certain parts of the world, like Africa, Denmark, places, mm-hmm. um, they were playing the songs together, like my song and his song. Oh, that's cool. So a director was just like, you know what? This is amazing. We have to make a movie about this. So they made a movie about uh, Billy Paul, and um, they came to Philly, and we performed the song together on stage. And oh, it was just wow. like that. I was on stage, and, I, and I forget, I'm looking at Billy Paul sing. I'm not just got so deep into the song, I forgot my part. And I had on shades. I don't even know how Billy Paul knew. And he was like, and schooly. <laughs> and I came in. And, my, and it was like, but it was it was um the coolest. He was uh, hung out with his wife, and he was like the coolest dude. But he was... He was a huge, and I and in my um, in my set always play a piece of Billy Paul music mm-hmm. as a segue, and I remind people, you know, he yeah. inspired me. But it was he was the cat. So you mentioned doing soundtracks for movies, but, and you've done a number, or you've contributed to a number of soundtracks. I I, I became a, um, a film composer for a long time. I, yeah. Um, Ava Farrar. Um, I did that. The second film was Bad Lieutenant. That yeah. movie is yeah. such a raw and he, film. And he, and, and he took one of, the, one of my songs previously recorded, um, Signifying Rapper, which we got sued for. Because a couple of things. Les Semlin didn't believe it was a live band. He thought it was a sample. And that's how badass Philadelphia musicians are. Yeah. The movie company didn't clear it, basically. So we had to take it out of the, the film. So, But Abel told me, he was like, look, dude, you so black. Not in color, but just, 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 and <laughs> in, in heart. It's like even you're too black for black radio. And he said, like, look, you know how Prince is part of R and B, but Prince is a side 
mm-hmm. like to, to the right or to the left. He said, you're part of hip hop and rap, but your music is to the right. So you don't fit any format. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, and he said, what's your main goal? You want to make music and you want to sell it. I'm right. like, well, yeah. So let me break it down to you like this. If you make a song, it's just on the radio and it's a big hit. It might be a big hit for a year, but then you got to wait 25 years before it become a classic for people to play it against it. But if you make music for movies, it'll be around forever. It's in the movie theater, then it's in the dollar movie theater, then it's on HBO, and you hit Showtime, a broader audience it's on too, DVD, right? yeah. it's on VHS, it's on ABC, yes. it's on NBC. And your money wise, and he said, Do you write all the music? So you got to do all the music, all the lyrics. It's mm-hmm. like, dude, you're perfect because yeah. all the publishing. You'll get rich. Yeah. And license the stuff, man. They ain't gonna yep. play you anyway. I mean, think about it. my one of my singles was um was Mr. Big Dick. And I did a video for it. Yeah. And that's when Job and R. was just like this crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but I told him I said, Well, I'm gonna win in the end. The song is beautiful because years later, Rabbit and the Moon did a remix and, and um they did a mix and then they put it in a Deborah Harry movie. Uh, six ways to Sunday. Mm-hmm. So it was like I was, I was into making music for the sake of making really good music, a really cool song, not making music to go on the radio. Right, right. And I tried. I really did try. I tr- I tried my ass off with all these you know preconceptions. Like yeah, man, we gonna we gonna we gonna dance and we gonna sing. And I did a song called Smoke Some Kill. And at that time, it was like a, there was a lot of people making records about weed, and it was on the radio. And they said the radio said that we can't play your record. I'm like, what do you mean? Because you're talking about weed. So everybody else is talking about weed. Yeah. It's like, yeah, but you're a little bit too direct, and you're a little bit too believable. Kinda, yeah. Well, isn't that do. the point? And that's, yeah, <laughs> but it was it was like, nah, we kind of we kind of needed to be more clownish, clowning up. Yeah. You're an entertainer now. Yeah, you're, you're not so an artist. It was like, you're an I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. So, um, in 1999, that's when I pretty much left making music for 1989, making music for um, radio and right. making music working with Abel. Right, more for movies. For, yeah, because I, I think from you, you, you had a number w. of albums that came out from late 80s through the 90s. Yeah. A lot of them then were used yeah. for yeah. for movies. Yeah, and I would just I put I would put the album out. When I did a movie, so I'd have some, yeah, just some material, material out there. It was, um, yeah, it was, a, it was, it was, that was an amazing part of my life. But I always wanted to do this since I was a kid. I wanted to make art. I wanted to make yeah. music for film. I, I did everything that I wanted to do. So tell me about Aqua Teen Hunger Force because right. I grew up watching Aqua okay. Teen Hunger Force. Right. It's, uh, again, all this started when I was a kid with me and, me and my mother, and I was like, I would wake up Saturday and I would listen to Hong Kong Fooey and Scooby-Doo, oh, yeah. so I would wake up in the Hannah morning, Barbera. And, I would, and I would like look at the cartoons, and I would like hand draw them like, real fast, mm-hmm. like and because um, I'm also a, a, a fine artist, but it was like, and I also was just like, man, when I grow up, until my mother said, when I grow up, I'm going to write a Scooby-Doo song. But so then later, you know, I did a couple things for the for the Cartoon Network. Uh, did a Space Ghost Coast to Coast. Yes. I did a record for them, a children's record, and um, they had a show called Rudy and Go-Go Show, and they really loved me, so they named one of the characters after me. Um, so they was like, so what are you, so we doing all these things, they like, what do you want? So I wanted a Scooby-Doo song. Um, and, and two years 
after um, or a year later after Space Ghost Coast to Coast, I got a call and said, we got your Scooby-Doo song. Um, they sent me the script and the guys are from South Jersey. So I'm like, oh yeah, I got this. And they paid me a whole bunch of money. And um, I wrote the bass line. Boom, the boom, boom, mm-hmm. boom, and forgot about it. <laughs> totally, kind of, totally forgot about it. Had the money, everything. So like, I don't know, six months later, who knows? Mm-hmm. They show up in Philly for the Fringe Festival, um, and we partied the whole weekend. We, I mean, we—I don't—I think we maybe slept one hour for four days. Oh my! And um, <laughs> they were—they were going to the airport the next day, and it was like, "So, Schoolie, can we hear the song?" Yeah. I'm like, "What song? You heard enough music? Know the song we paid you for?" So I called my man Smoking E Horowitz. <laughs> I was like, "Dude, we got a problem." <laughs> and I was dropping off the hotel. It was like twelve thirty. And um, at at night, and he was like, "What's wrong?" I said, "You know that song we were supposed to do?" Like, yeah. They what about it? it? They're in town. Yeah. So he got out of bed. Um, he comes out to it's just like one thirty in the morning, and the thing is, it's like they wanted to be there because they didn't trust me, which they should have done. So they called me up. It's like, no, we're coming down. We want to get the song. We want to leave with the song. With the song. So you just like you guys just. Came so in they there came down. Threw it down. You just threw they it down. They came down with a um, with, a, with a, um, a video. What was this thing called? Camcorder. Yeah. And, um, I miss those things. And um, I put the beat up. Boom, 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 boom. Just put the beat on, and Eric added something. And um, I didn't have no. I had no lyrics. Um, and when, and most of my songs are about people don't know. It's like friends and family members. Yeah. So the three people in Aquatine is me and my two brothers. Really, and I'm so, so I'm just like, so what are the characters' names again? And it was like they was getting real nervous, and they gave me they just I just wrote the character's name and my brother's a Taurus, and you know my other brother always running from the police, and you know me I'm just trying to get. <laughs> <laughs> so the first thing out of my mouth was, my name is Sheikh Zula, the Mike Ruler, the old schooler. You want a chip? I bring it to you. Fry lock and I'm on top, making like a cop. Me, why jump neck? What you knock, knock? Me, why make the money, see? Me, why get the honeys, G? Driving in my car, living like a star. Ice in my fingers and my toes and I'm a Taurus. Because we all an aqua team. It was freestyle. Louis Rice Bond, I told him I had it written six months ago. They, it was like, it was amazing that that came out of my mouth. That that was a rock star moment. And it was three minutes, and it was just, like, amazing. And um, that was it. They give you the other half? Of course they did. They, they were amazed. They didn't, and they said it, that we didn't believe you had the song. We thought you were yeah. jerking us around. Yeah. I wasn't jerking them around, but I was not to be trusted either. <laughs> you know, you, you understand what I'm saying? It's like I wasn't jerking you around, but... You were going to get the song. Dude, I've been on enough gigs. Yeah, you were going to get the song, but you might have got it in a week. Mm-hmm. But it was like, it was good that they were there. Yeah. Because that gave me the energy yeah. and, the, and, and the audience yeah. to just like, you know, to, to to do it right. And once I did it, it was just like, you know what? You should do more for the, for you know, you should do like all the music and, you know, be a character, be the narrator. Yes. And, and um, that's how that started. And it's, um, yeah. And then 14, less than 14 seasons. Made a movie. Made a movie. And was, I, I didn't think we were ready for a movie, but they made it. Because they gave us so just that that thing makes so much money. And it was just like, well, you got to do you gotta do something with the money. We got to spend the money or they're going to take it back. But I want, you know, then I wound up moving back to Atlanta and uh, working on some other stuff, like 12-ounce mouths and doing some other things yeah. with them. 
it was um and I did like half like two years I was living in Myrtle Beach. I did the show for Myrtle Beach. I lived in the hotel room on on the beach and just mm. you know, that's that's when that's when the twenty first century really kicked in. When you didn't have to actually be in the room looking at film mm-hmm. scoring it. Yep. When somebody can just send you You can just go be in a little tape. room by yourself. You know, yeah, it was fun in the beginning. I, I kind of don't like it now, but I kind of, yeah, I kind of do. I mean, because it's like you know what? It's personal. School D is personal. Yes. Um, yeah, it's, per- it's school D, and it's like it's, it's. Um, I didn't know any other way to do it. I didn't know any, there is no there's no other way to do school D. Let's switch gears here for a second, because yes, we got it, a track here that we're gonna play. Yours. Oh, what is it? This is the real hardcore. Right. This is featuring Ice T. Yeah, tell me about this track. Um, I was on the phone with my partner, and um, and um, he was on the phone with, with um, Ice-T's manager, George, and it was like, you know what, dude, this is shame that you and Ice-T never did a record together. And we talked about it. It was like it's t- it's time for us. It's, we we're like brothers, but we never did a song together. So you know, it was it was that easy and that. I want to use the word magical, but I think magical would have been if we was in the studio together, but I don't think we needed to be in the studio together. That might have been a little bit too much. Mm-hmm. We might have just like canceled each other out. Gotcha. A lot of things I like I do in the studio, it's just my business. <laughs> <laughs> and then Chuck D called me, and he was like, dude, Ike just told me that you did a, you know, because Gucci Town is like, PSK inspired Ice T with his voice. Right. Gucci Town Inspired like Chuck D. D for his looking at my Gucci is about that. He said when he heard that, that's when he said, "That's my voice right there." Wow. So so he got down on on the track. Two, mm. You know what I'm saying? It was um. That dude's intellect. So if I was gonna do a, an album, uh, which I did, which took me a few years to do, it's just like um, it only makes sense to do it with those two cats, right? Yeah. Let's take a quick break and take a listen to this track play for our listeners here and then we'll come back in all right rolling with schooly d can't get more gas than this Put his pistol up against his head and said, 
So what what is Schooly D doing now? What are you doing um, now? I I just um, I got an actual record 
um, I'm working with Phil Niccolo and Chris Schwartz and um, uh, Arrogate Creep Records. Uh, it took me eight years to actually record and mix this mix mix the record. I was only going to do it if I did an actual album. So it's so on School of the Rough Nation. And another project, um, the actor-director, uh, Owen Klein, he's, um, he's going to bring all his New York boys down and make a crazy, crazy, because, you know, we're crazy and we're, we're whacked out. We're going to remake some some of our, some of my songs, uh, new songs and classic songs and make a video. Well, thanks for taking the time to come in and share with our listeners a little bit and look forward to the upcoming projects. Yeah. Well, that concludes another episode of What Do You Know About That? Just a reminder, you can catch us from 4 to 5 p.m. every second and fourth Thursday of the month here on G-Town Radio. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thanks for tuning in.